Okay, so tonight as we come to 2 Samuel, we just transition right from 1 Samuel. The storyline, the narrative, it's all like right on cadence and sequence. So we left off verse by verse last week with Saul stepping into eternity where he gets struck down in the battle against the Philistines after he went to the witch at Endor. It was told him, you're, you're a goner in a day, and so it was, and Saul died with Jonathan and his other son, and those events played out that way. About the same time, we know that David had been rejected by the Philistine warlords to go to battle with the Philistines against Saul, and so King David had gone back to Ziglag, and when he got there, the women, the children, all the possessions were gone, their houses were burnt, and then they pursued the Amalekites, recaptured everything came back to Ziglag and to rebuild and then dispersed the extra wealth that they picked up from the Amalekite raiders and distributed to the elders of Judah, which is our topical study on Saturday night. So tonight we just come forward from these events. These are different storylines running parallel, and the events we've been reading about have all been unfolding over about a one-week period. These are dramatic events in human history, biblical history, and for the nation of Israel. And so with that background, we pick it up now in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Now, it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David had stayed two days in Ziglag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said, where have you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Goboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered, I am a Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. This is how David got the news that his oppressor, his attacker, his persecutor, his afflictor, Saul, was now dead. But in the same news, his best friend, his one true friend, the man most like him as a man of faith and a man of God, is also dead. It's just, who can, who can even understand the emotions that David felt about this? But you know, on this moment, in this day when this happened, don't we all now appreciate so much how Saul When David had his chances to take out Saul, he didn't. Like, when you think back now, like, how even Abigail prevented him from avenging himself against Nabal, her husband, how much more so was the Lord involved to keep him after cutting Saul's robe in the cave of the wild goats to not take Saul's life that moment? And then when he had Saul's spear, to not heed the counsel and thrust him through with his spear, but to return it to him and let it go. We understand and realize, even as this news came to David, that things have a way of playing out. God's timing is perfect timing. 
and particularly when it comes to vindication or setting the record straight or injustices being made right, it's just always so much better to let the Lord work things out. Because when you get this news, think how different the news would have been for David had he actually known that he killed Saul when he killed him in the cave. If he had killed him in the cave or if he had struck him through with the spear of Saul, the spear Saul had thrown at him. Think how different it would have been now at this point in his life to have been the one to avenge himself as opposed to just Saul died in battle. Like he even said when he was told to kill Saul with his own spear, Saul's spear, he, he went on to say, like, if the Lord wants to take him in battle or through age or whatever, that's the Lord's business, but I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And how much peace for David this moment, at least in the midst of heartache, he's just trying to recalibrate his life in general as well. But to not have the guilt and the self-condemnation, let alone the conviction from God, that he took Saul's life. It's just so much better when we trust in the Lord. When the difficult day comes, it's so much better if it's something God did as opposed to something we did. Then you can sing about it and not have malice in your heart, which is what he does in the second part of this chapter. But what about Saul? The irony of his end is just, it's crazy. Because... The dominant object in his life, as we've been looking at him, is his spear. He threw the spear. He threw the spear. He threw the spear. Remember we said, don't throw the spear, because once you start throwing it, you never stop throwing it. And the irony of, in the historical record of his last moments being alive, this Amalekite describes the scene, and there Saul, he's dying, but he's dying with his spear by his side. I just... I'm forever going to look at the story of Saul and David and always see that spear because he started throwing it at David, then he threw it at his own son, he slept with it by his head, and here he is in his last moment. That spear is his identity, and it's the worst identity possible that he could have. What he should have done with the spear years ago was obey the Lord and thrust the Malachi king through with the spear, Agag. That's what he should have done. That spear, if that spear had been in obedience to the Lord and executed Agag as he was told to do by Samuel the prophet in this book, then the spear would be something of a, like the board you, you won a surf contest with, like Kelly Slater's boards and all of his wins or something. You know, like something like that or the golf clubs that were Tiger Woods when he won the Tiger Slam back in 2001. That would mean something. But what was, it could have been the tool of obedience became the symbol of disobedience. Which, by the way, is so often what people do with their gifts from God, right? There's lots of incredible singers. There's lots of incredible athletes. There's lots of brilliant minds. But how many of them belong to the Lord? It's much better to just use those gifts, as he says to, than to make them yours. And just, it's a lonely day when you die alone like that. Now, in this story, this contradicts the story of 1 Samuel, his end. Because in 1 Samuel, we're told that he was dying uh, he had hit by an arrow, and he asked his armor bearer to th- thrust him through. So we have to reconcile these. We, don't, we can reconcile these stories. There's only two possibilities. Either the armor bearer struck him through, then the armor bearer, were told, killed himself, and Saul truly didn't die when the armor bearer struck him, and then the Amalekite came on the scene, and this was the scene. Or this is a fabricated story by the Amalekite to try and cash in, because, you know, Amalekites are Amalekites. That's what they do. They're all about the money. Like Dog the Edomite, same type of thing. It's all about the money. 
So this Amalekite gets this idea that if I bring, and by the way, that's the other thing we see with Saul is his crown. In these opening verses, we see his spear and his crown. And like all other earthly treasures, the crown gets left behind. And the crown gets left behind. So the Amalekite grabs the crown and the, the bracelet, comes to David and declares these things to be so. And when you see the crown, what David knew, Saul's crown, so he would know like that is definitely Saul's crown. He has a testimony of one person, an Amalekite, and that's what he goes on. But again, the irony that, that Saul did not execute Agag, the Amalekite king, is just incredible that it'd be an Amalekite bringing news to David with his crown. Because what was the one thing Saul tried to keep David from doing? Take his crown. What was the one thing David never tried to do? Take his crown. Oh, the things we fret over, the things we worry about, the conspiracies we buy into in our, in our minds that we let happen and run wild in our minds. This is the end of Saul. All that he fretted over, all that drove him nuts, what's it matter now? And of all things, an Amalekite brings the news to David. It, there is a irony there because it's a subtlety in the word of God that tells us if we would just take care of the, if we just do what God calls us to do on the day that he calls us to do it, the disobedience will not come back to haunt us as a testimony against us when the day we're gone from time, space, and matter. Because this Amalekite is a testimony that he did not obey the Lord. And who can forget those famous words of Saul? Oh, but I have obeyed the Lord and did all that he asked me to do. Evidently not. And here it is a testimony again in the declaration of his death. Now, we read on to David, how David's response is. So verse 11 Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. So that's his 600 men. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they'd fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he said, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is, it's, I mean, it's just like, the whole story of David is like, at times, it's like a heavy story. This is, a, this is such a radical scene. But what really gets my attention, and there's a really good application here, is think before you act. Now, we've talked about sometimes you have to act with urgency, right? We've seen that with David. Some things, you got to make a quick decision. But if you can think about it, slow things down, especially huge decisions. Now, let's put ourselves in David's mind, his headspace. Let's go in David's headspace here. Just less than a week before, his own men were about to kill him. Yeah, that was the, they were going to stone him. So the 600 employees that he's developed and made them mighty men from being in debt, in distress, and discontent, these men, they all lost everything. Their wives, their identity, their houses were burned, their wealth, they lost it all, and the men were about to kill him. But before that, three days before that, he was rejected by Achish and the Philistine warlords from doing the job that he felt he'd been prepared to do. 
Remember he was promised by Achish, you'll be one of my chief guardians forever. Well, that contract didn't come through, did it? He got let go. That's, you know, we talked about Achish. That was a whole topical study two weeks ago. So he dealt with all that. Then he gets released. Then he goes to Ziglag. Everyone's taken. Then he goes and wins the battle, has excess wealth. So instead of spending it like a fool, he wisely invests in the future and gives it to the elders of Judea, the leaders of Judea, excuse me, of Judah. And here he is three days looking at his burnt out community. It's like when you have a fire in East County, San Diego, or a fire in Anaheim Hills, and you all come back and you're looking at burnt out houses. How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? Not only that, do we even belong in Ziglag anymore? But they don't know Saul's dead yet. So for three days, he's been in Ziglag looking at burnt out houses with the wives and kids assessing what is the next step? TNT, the next step. What is the next step? And what's the most important thing that is the next step? What's the macro thing right now, the most important thing? And what's the next little thing that goes in the direction of fulfilling the big thing? And he's been there for three days. It says he's been there three days. They lost their houses. They got temporary shelter. It's like a natural disaster. They've lost their coverings, but they've got their goods. They've got their people. Honey, don't worry about it. We're going to figure this out. We'll figure this out. That's what's going on. Then this guy shows up, and he's holding Saul's crown. Well, that's, isn't that a game changer? Wouldn't you say, in, as David's thinking about what's next in his life, this Amalekite showing up with, David's, with Saul's crown, that is a game changer. When you're trying to process, do I go to this college or that college? Do I take this job or this job? Do I offer, put an offer on this house or sell this house? Listen, when they show up and they, and they put Saul's crown in your equation of prayer, that's a big, that's a game changer. That's a huge factor in the equation. So look what he does. Verse 10, it just says they brought him to the Lord. And verse 11 says, Therefore David took hold of his clothes, tore them, and then they mourned and wept all evening. And by the way, the men, I'm sure, are very grateful they didn't kill Saul either. And that they heeded David's counsel to just let it go, that God will deal with it, because now they don't have any blood guilt on them either for Saul's death. They truly are sincere in their mourning. They didn't have to climb the corporate ladder and step on people to do it. God removed Saul, and David is the anointed king of the future. And there's no rejoicing in what happened to Saul. There's just trusting in God with what's going to happen to us and being with David. It says he wept and fasted until evening. David got away with the Lord. We've already seen him press into the Lord, strengthen himself in the Lord, inquire of the Lord. And here David mourns and he fasts and prays and he's just processing the information. Can you trust the word of Amalekite? Probably not. But can you trust the crown of Saul in his hand? Yes. The Saul of crown is heavy evidence that Saul has been killed. It's strong evidence. And then he comes out and he he lays it down. Execute him. Execute him. We know we talked about emotion. We've been talking about this. The more emotional you are, the less likely you're to make good decisions in the spirit and with finances. It's pretty much a fact. As you get emotional, your financial IQ goes down. You make really bad decisions the more emotional you are with finances. And it's the same with the spirit. The more you react to emotion or are governed by emotions, the more they're inclined to supersede the mind of Christ and the spirit and how you act or react. And in this case, it's a reaction to a situation. 
David didn't just grab the sword of Goliath and start hacking away this Amalekite in a rage. He tore his clothes, walked away, got in a tent somewhere, and came out hours later and said, execute him. Because now he is the king. David knows he's the king. And we talked about when he gave his, the wealth to the Judean elders from the Amalekite surplus on Saturday night. Start acting like a king. Like Proverbs 31, the uh, virtuous women before that were told the behaviors of a king. You don't linger long on alcohol. You don't, you don't act like a fool and carry yourself. Be that person. Start carrying yourself like a king. When David comes out, he by his own mouth said he killed the king of Israel. By your own mouth, it's on you. Execute him. That's justice. And we're told in Romans 13 that, the, that Caesar doesn't bear the sword in vain. That when there's an execution, there's generally a good reason for it, at least in the context of there in Romans 13. The authority of government, God's ordained government, to, to execute justice and judgment to the benefit of society. You don't want Charles Manson walking the streets of Orange County on June 7, 2022, or any of his followers for what they did to the LaBiancas and Sharon Tate and her family, right? Those of you know who I'm talking about, you older people know what I'm talking about. That's just the way it is. This is a king acting like a king. So he sets it straight, but he thought about it. So this is his key thought from this part of this chapter. Think about it. When our emotions are going up, we got to try and slow them down and think about it. When our emotions are going up, we've got to try and slow it down and think about it. Keep the spiritual IQ high by staying calm, seeking the Lord, and being set upon the Lord. Amen? Because we all know a soft answer turns away wrath, but the wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God. So like Abigail, who stayed calm in her situation when David was coming, it diffused everything. But we know in human experience, people get worked up and it escalates. And we don't want to look back and say, oh, I should handle it this way or I should handle it this way. We want to keep our wits, be at peace with the Lord. And if we have to do hard things, like pronouncing judgment on an Amalekite who's holding the crown of Saul, we want to make sure that we've slowed things down and we can live with that decision when we wake up tomorrow morning. Now, we read on. Then David lamented with his lamentation, with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. So obviously there's a book. It's not in the Bible, but it's called the book of Jasher. And David wrote this song. And of course, David wrote many of the Psalms in our book of Psalms. And so he's a songwriter. And he wrote this song on that day, the emotion. You think when Scott Cunningham was just leading worship and some of the songs he's singing, he wrote quite a few of those songs. And songwriters, they can, they can articulate what we can't, kind of like poets and stuff and writers. And David, David could articulate life through song. I'm going through the Psalms right now in my morning devotion. And David, he could just, he could put to words things that we want to say that we can't say sometimes. And so that's what he's doing here. Verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. 
Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Two things here. I like verse 24. If you're going to be a king or president or governor, you want to improve the quality of the life of the people you lead in general or a mayor. And look what it says. David said, O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Hey, the economy was good. It was a good, good economy when, David was, when Saul was king. It was a good economy. Most kings and presidents are evaluated by what kind of economy what kind of revenue, the finances, what was uh, the economy like when they were in power, right? There's like, hey, ladies, you just sing a good song. When Saul was king, you, you, the economy was good. We might have had problems with the Philistines and all this other stuff, but you, you were living good. So give credit where credit's due. I like that. It's like a memorial service, you know, like there are memorial services that you go to where you can't say a lot of good things about the person. Now, a couple of the ones I've done recently have been very wonderful to do. But like Christy Estes and, and Ethelin Marcucci, Ethelin Sr., and knowing these people and their lives and how they live their lives and the legacy of their lives, it's, it's enjoyable to get up and talk about their lives. One of the things I don't like about an open mic at a memorial, and I've said this many, many times, is you don't know which, like, I don't like them at a wedding either, by the way. They're pretty dangerous at both of them, to be honest. Amen? You know, like, I don't have to control things, but, you know, you just don't know where it's going to go when people are drinking happy juice at a wedding and they start toasting, like, where that's going to go. We've all seen that if you live long enough, you know. Um, But then at a memorial, you don't know because people get up and they start saying things, and people are doing a lot of raw emotions at a memorial, a lot of raw emotions. Some people get up and they tell stories and they start laughing because that's how they're dealing with it. Some people get up and tell stories and they start sobbing. Some people get up, they laugh, they, saw, they laugh, and they sob at the same time. I don't particularly like that. Because I have seen people get up at memorials and embarrass themselves, but I've also seen way worse people get up at memorials and be disrespectful to the people that is being laid to rest. Well, in this memorial, when David got this news, this song honors Saul. This song esteems Saul. He's saying good things about Saul. He's blessing Saul. He's not talking about the spear of Saul or the things that Saul put him through. He's talking about how good the economy was when Saul was president. He's saying good things. And you know, it's been well said, if you look for good, you will, you'll find good. But if you're looking for bad, you'll find bad. Just trying to give the tips and nuggets from David's life. 
Now, he says love of Jonathan is better than a woman. Now, there can only be one love by God's definition that's better than a man for a woman and a woman for a man, and that is the love of God for humanity. The Greeks, of course, had many words for love. They had eros love for sexual love, which would include the idea of romantic love, but of course, we all know sex and romance can be separated. But when you have true friendship love with true romantic love, then you have wonderful intimate love and sexual intimacy. The Greeks like lots of words for love, and we lose definition of love because we, we use, like, I mean, I catch myself, like, I'll see someone on Instagram, like a friend, like they're surfing, it's a good video, it's like, I love this edit. Well, do I love this edit like I love my children? Like I love the Lord, right? Like we have one word for all of it. Or I, I've learned to put, like, this is a great edit, like super cool edit, whatever, like, but we're quick to say that. Like I love pressed ice cream over in Newport from, you know, made from the pecans, like super healthy. I love, we love to go to press juice and get good stuff. I love that. I love Jennifer's artichoke tacos, you know, like, like we say, I love a lot about food, by the way, don't we? Because some people say, I love McDonald's, right? Like we use the word very loosely, but the Greeks had the word love for eros, sexual, and they had phileo love, which is the friendship love. But as we know in the New Testament, Jesus took that historical word that was an archaic word. So if we were to read our, New, our King James Bible from like 17, it was originally like 1612 and then like 1731, I think is the King James. When you read the old King James, like 1731, and you get the these and the thous, those are archaic words. Like you young people, when someone says they love you, they don't, they don't go, Thou hast known forever that I love thee. You'd be like, what? Like, you are thou flower of the field. You know, like, like we don't talk like that. Those words are archaic. In fact, we don't say groovy anymore either, right? There's some really good songs from the 60s, but every time they drop the groovy, feeling groovy, it's like, it's like oh, man, that's definitely dating a word. Like when you watch the Brady Bunch, it's like groovy or far out, right? Even in other languages, maybe words they were using six years ago in Chile, they're not using the same slangs anymore in Chile, like we're not using the same slangs here anymore. I remember in the early 2000s, Pancho Juarez was teaching, he goes, yeah, man, it's the hookup. I'm like, what's a hookup? Like, but now that term's like, that's so yesterday, that's so like millennials or something, like hookups, like long gone. Well, the word agape, the archaic word of the Greek language agape, Jesus took that word. And he used that word to describe his love for people. He used it to describe how much God the Father loved humanity, that God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus. So we're not talking phileo like friendship love, really good friendship love. Because you can have really good friendship love. You really can. You can be like best friends. Girls seem to be able to have best friend love that way, friendship love usually more than guys. But sometimes guys are really, really tight too, like really good friends, the best of friends. Especially when you've gone through stuff. Like the, the whole story of Band of Brothers is like men that went through war together and they're deep, it's Band of Brothers. There's a, full, uh, a Philadelphia love, that phileo love, like a friendship love. So when Captain Winters and all those guys would get together at reunions long after World War II, there, there's a love there that they went through things together. But the agape love supersedes that. There can only be one love greater than a man for a woman. 
Because the Bible tells us the love of a man for a woman and a woman for a man is the most natural love, and it's reserved to the highest pinnacle of a physical expression of friendship love at the highest level in sexual, in sexual intimacy in marriage. So the only love that can be greater than the love for a woman is the love of God. Jonathan and David had a friendship where there was unconditional love that reflected the love of God in their friendship. They made covenants with each other to have each other's back. So Jesus took that word and gave us the real meaning of love. By this we know love that Christ died for us when we're yet sinners. So we're cursing Jesus on the cross like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's agape love. That is way more than phileo love. And it's a whole other dimension than eros love. Because eros love is limited to time, space, and matter. Sexual intimacy is the fifth of Maslow's drives. So you have air, air, three minutes. Water, three days. Food, three weeks. Bowels, you have to relieve yourself like Saul in the cave. And sexual intimacy. And when someone's about to step into eternity, these things fade. So the last thing someone has is they're breathing heavily, laboring in their breath and they don't want water or the ice chips anymore. Do you know what I'm saying, people? But agape love transcends the dimensions. The eros love stays behind. God's designed it a certain way, the man or woman, or any perverted version that people have of that, it gets left behind. But the agape love, to be accepted in the beloved, the love that God gave his son to know love because Jesus did this and have Jesus himself say, greater love has no man than this and to lay down their life for their friends. That's the love that surpasses the love of a man for a woman. And that is the love Jesus Christ gives to everyone who opens their heart to him by faith. Isn't that beautiful? That's real love. Though my father and my mother forsake me, you will never forsake me, the psalmist said. And Jesus said, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So David's Psalm 23 of the good shepherd, that is Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. There's a higher love of the highest level. And somehow before Christ ever came into the world in the shadow of things to come, the friendship of Jonathan and David had a love that is the love of the realm of the spirit, the love of eternity that surpasses the temporal love of a man for a woman. And that is amazing. And I feel sorry for anyone else on planet Earth who thinks this passage means anything other than that. They're twisted, demented, and delusional. Now, we read on. Chapter 2. So in other words, we get to know that love that surpasses the love of a woman. And ladies, obviously... You get to know the love that surpasses the love of a man, which is really important, right? Because if you've ever been married, you know the love of men comes up short. So we can say that without even having to say it, but I'll say it anyways. Jesus is the perfect husband. And that's why we're even told in the Bible, he's our husband and our maker. He is the perfect husband. He never raises his voice at his wife. He never cheats on his wife. And he never lusts after a woman other than his wife. So for all the times you've ever been disappointed by the love of men, the sons of Adam, you'll know, you can know, you will never, ever, ever be disappointed by the love 
that Jesus Christ has for you, which is greater than the love of a man for a woman. Chapter 2. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he, the Lord said, To Hebron. So David, it, so time leaves a glide. Those days are over. It's time to get moving. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinam the Jezreelite and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they all dwelt in the city of Hebron. So here comes like 600 plus men and all their families. Hebron just got a full power surge increase of humanity. Verse 4. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show you kindness and truth to you. I also will pay you this kindness, because you've done this thing. Now therefore, let your hand be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me uh, king over them. But Abner... The son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishabeth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahaniam, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So Ishbath, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months couple of things here. In the very beginning, David inquires of the Lord and says, shall I go up? What should I do? Basically, that's what he's saying. What should I do? It's a good question to ask the Lord, especially when you don't know what to do. And the Lord said to him, go up. And then, where do I go up? So these are the big questions we have, like who, what, when, where, how? These are, these are good questions to ask over your goals and your visions and your dreams. Like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Where are we going with this? How are we going to do it? And when are we going to do it? Who, what, when, where, why, how are key words that give us a sense of direction. When you learn a foreign language, you usually learn these words. These are the words you learn early on. Donde? Donde esta tu casa? Donde esta mi perro? Right? Uh, Donde estoy mi perro? Right? Like, you, you, you learn... Where, and like, you know, que, que, que pasa, what, what is up, right? So that's the way it is. Cuando, you know, like, I mean, Russian is what you do. It's the, the first words you learn. We need to depend upon the Lord to know our what, where, when, why, how. Now, those don't always go together. But in this case, what's the next thing? David's like, do do I go? What would what, what I do? Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? Because am I supposed to keep living in Ziglag where I lived as a fugitive from Saul in Philistine territory, although now it's considered part of Judah? Like, what do I do? Do I go up to the cities of Judah? What's the next move? And the Lord says, go. Okay. There's quite a few villages and cities in Judah. Where do I go? God's in the details. He has the right woman for the right place at the right time. 
He's got the right man in the right place at the right time for the right things to do. He is in the details. We see in the book of Acts even where you've got the right people in the wrong place at the wrong time. But then you've got the right people in the wrong place, but at the wrong time. Paul was the right person, but he tried to go to Bithynia, the Lord forbid him. And he was never sent to Bithynia. Wrong place, wrong time. But then he went to Ephesus, but it wasn't his time for Ephesus. So he's the right person in the right place, but the wrong time. And then later on in the book of Acts, in his later journeys, he lives in Ephesus for a couple of years, and now he's the right person in the right place at the right time. And so it is really good for us to allow the Lord to lead us. How are we going to do this? Who's going to do this? When do we do this? Where are we going to do this? And what are we doing? I like to have the Lord over my, those things because he will speak to us because we're told to seek him for direction. We're told to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added to us. Everything else is the things we worry about every day, like what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear, our daily living. So we're invited and told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 to seek first the kingdom, and he'll, that's what he'll give us. This is what you're doing. And then all the other stuff comes after that. We really want the Lord. We really want to inquire of the Lord for what's next. We don't ever want to come to the place where we've got it all figured out and we exclude the Lord from what are we doing, where are we doing, when are we doing it, how are we doing it, and who are we doing it with. We want to keep that. We want to keep, keep, keep looking at that. In the last couple of years, we've had so many people move on from the church through COVID and just in general. Actually, all churches have. Most churches lost a third of their congregations during the COVID lockdowns and the, whatever it is we went through for two years. Most churches had at least a turnover, at least 35% plus of their congregations. And in California, most churches lost a lot of people to Arizona, California, and Idaho, and other places. So I can tell you what I've been praying a lot in the last two years. Who? How? Who's going to replace this person? Because we're all, ir- we're all irreplaceable. I can't replace Garrett Frisbee any more than I could replace... Alex Lopez, or Al Diaz, and others who came before us, or Ryland Sparks. Who is going to replace Ryland on the soundboard? How are we going to do this? I haven't been so much concerned about where, because I know where, and when these guys have left, I know when. Alex is gone, Broderick's gone, Ryland's gone. I, don't, I know when, but who and how? But the beauty of trusting the Lord is he'll raise up the answers to those questions. We haven't had a youth ministry for an entire year. Do you know why? Because God never showed us who. It's like shopping for shoes, tennis shoes, my favorite shoes. My only shoes. That's why I wear them at funerals and weddings. It is. When you, you ever walk into a shoe store and you think, for sure they got my shoes. I go to the Nike area or whatever, like, oh, look at these. It's like, these are nice shoes. But sometimes you walk around with like three or four pairs of shoes on, and you don't like any of them, right? Or ladies are trying on a dress or whatever, dresses, and you're like, I don't like, you ever go on dress shopping, ladies, and you don't come home with a dress? <laughs> yeah, I don't like any of them. You're back at square one. Are you going to force yourself to buy a dress when it's not really the dress? You got, you're you're getting a dress? That's not the dress. 
don't buy it. It's out there. I don't buy shoes just because I went to Foot Locker or the Nike store at the outlet mall. I want to buy shoes if I go there, but I'm not just going to buy them because I'm buying shoes. I'm going to buy shoes because I like the way they look and I like the way they feel. Like the book, Dr. Seuss, are you my mother? Are you my shoes? Are you my shoes? I have shoes that I wear when I walk with my wife. I have shoes that I wear when I teach and look nice, or they got to be tighter too because they're dance shoes. Like I have shoes that are like these, these shoes, a little gold swoosh. By the way, she got paid 35 bucks for that swoosh. Um, but sometimes there's no shoes. Sometimes the answer is none of the above. Sometimes it's not the, any of these dresses, and you walk. So we haven't had a youth leader in this church for a year. We haven't had youth upstairs for a year because I'm not going to force who? I'm not going to force who? Garrett's leaving for Texas. We're losing another pastor. I'm not going to force another pastor. It could be this, it could be that, but I'm not going to force it. That's just the way it is. Sometimes you don't have your who, which means wait. It was a tough decision last summer to not do anything with the youth group upstairs. I mean, I tried, I had this idea where Sam could be up there, be down here, because Sam could do a great job with the youth. He's held them together with gatherings in the last year. But I, now I know he's called to be in the back of the sanctuary every service, because he knows what I'm thinking. We're like two basketball players on a fast break. He knows where it's going, and he knows where the pass is going to arrive. And we, magic the worthy, like if you know what I'm talking about. Like that's old school, but we know the playbook. And the integrity of the sanctuary is the most important thing during, this, during this, a gathering. There was no who. I asked a few people to be who. We need to trust the Lord to answer all these questions. What are we doing? When are we doing it? Where are we doing it? How are we doing it? And who's going to do it? And if he answers some of the above, but not all the above, then you just wait on the Lord. Because what? Those that wait upon the Lord renew their strength. That's the way it is. David was like, okay, I'm in burned out zigzag. The crown of Saul is here. By the way, whatever, what did David do with the crown of Saul? Do you ever think about that one? What did he do with the crown of Saul? I don't know. It just disappears in history. I'm pretty certain he didn't wear it, though. When David was anointed by these leaders of Judah to be king, I'm pretty sure he didn't wear the crown of Saul. Which is another lesson. Let God crown you with your crown. And let him crown someone else with their crown. Don't try to be Saul under Saul's crown. Be you under your crown that the king gives you. So they anointed David king, and we see a powerful lesson here. Well, there's a lot here, but in verse 8, Abner will have none of it. Some people, they know what the... Abner knew that David was meant to be king. He confesses that later on in this book. But some people just got to hold on to power. They're just, they just can't trust the Lord. And you can't get frustrated because you trust the Lord and other people don't. Let me say that again. There's almost say on this application. We can't get frustrated because we trust the Lord or you trust the Lord and someone else doesn't. And they don't get it. Just make sure you trust the Lord. You'd be like, after all this, like you're looking at Abner like, dude, last time David talked with Abner, 
he was holding the spear of Saul going, like, what kind of a what kind of a armor bearer are you for the king, huh? I got the saw right here. Do your job. And Abner's like, at this point, everyone's like, I'll tell you how I do my job. We got a new king in the northern kingdom. I've got another son of Saul. And we're going to hold on to every last penny we have of his empire. We're going to make it arduous for you to go forward. We're not going to cooperate with you. We're not going to help you be king. Mr. Killed your 10,000s. We're going to fight you all the way. You know, you can get a promotion at work and have someone like that at work. They resent that you are truly the anointed one, and they're not, and they're going to try and undermine everything you do at work. There's lots of TV shows about stuff like that and movies. People trying to undermine you. You just have to be true to you. Wear the crown that God's called you to at this point. And realize this, that so often God gives the blessing and the calling in increments. Sometimes before you're a head coach in football, you're usually an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator or an offensive line coach. The new coach of the Lakers, he was an assistant coach for the Milwaukee Bucks, right, when they won the title last year. There's a process that prepares us for the next thing. And we can't despise, as the Bible says, the day of small beginnings. We need to embrace them and realize they're shaping them and molding us. You would think after all that David's been through, he's ready to be king over all of Israel and the territory the size of Southern California and all 12 tribes. But evidently, between him and the Lord, he's not. He's got seven and a half years to be a king of one of the 12 tribes. So even though he's not a, a vagabond and a fugitive now, he didn't get the whole inheritance. It's like the movie The Ultimate Gift. Do you know that movie? where the, the guy passes all these tests and he gets, he gets this thing where he gets entrusted with $100 million at the end because he passed all these tests. But the ultimate test was to not keep the $100 million, but to do benevolence with the $100 million. And once he gave away the $100 million to a hospital fund, then he was entrusted with the whole estate. Dave is entrusted with the $100 million here, one tribe. But if you're faithful in that, then maybe you're entrusted with the entire estate. That's the lesson from the movie, The Ultimate Gift with James Gardner. A Christian classic, by the way, from about 12 years ago. Really good movie. You might think you're ready for more. I might think I'm ready for more. You might think I'm ready for more, and I might think you're ready for more. But you know what? The final decision comes from the Lord. And he knows exactly what we're ready for, when we're ready for it, and... It's in his hands. Promotion comes from the Lord. So you thought maybe I am going to be the president. You're like, well, you know, you're operational manager now of the warehouse. Really? Because I feel like I could run this whole company now better than the, the boss's son. Well, that's not the point. A woman, a man can receive nothing that comes from above. It's just like that. So when Judah came to anoint David in verse 4, and they made him king of the house of Judah, be grateful that you're the king of the house or the queen of the house of Judah. Amen? Be grateful that you're the queen of the house of Judah or the king of the house of Judah. We don't have to be the queen of Israel or the king of Israel. That was Haman's downfall in the Persian Empire. He was number two, but somehow he just, as long as Mordecai didn't bow down to him, it was just one thing. He drove him nuts and he had to have more. Be content with promotion from the Lord. Be faithful with promotion from the Lord. And be glad you have a roof over your head in Hebron instead of a burnout 
framed house in Ziklag. And just get on with being king of Judah and let God worry about how you're going to be king of Israel. Because his timing is impeccable. Now we finish the chapter. Verse 12. It's all civil unrest and strife. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbot the son of Saul went out from Bahim to, to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servant of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And when Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. Job said, let him arise. He's a proud man, man. These guys, it's mighty men against mighty men. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishabath, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, so that erupted into a bigger battle. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asael. And Asael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. He's fast. He's fast, man. He's athletic. So Asael pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand to the left from the following Abner. And then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asael? And he answered, I am. And Abner said, Look, turn aside to your right hand or to your left. Lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. He wanted the biggest prize, the king of Israel for uh, the northern tribes. And, and he said, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then would I, can I face your brother Joab? However, Asael refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear. So the spear came out his back and he fell down there dead and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asael fell down and died, they stood still. You know, it's good to know our limits. We do want to push ourselves, but don't pick a fight that's not your fight, and don't try and fight a foe that's out of your league. Stay in your lane, and you got to know when to walk away. And Abner, this never ends, this sequence of bloodletting, but Abner, he gave him a warning, and sometimes people warn you, like, dude, we probably should withdraw this offer on this property. We probably should walk away from this relationship right now. We should probably let this go. And, you know, you get the warning, you get the warning, you get the warning, like you're kicking against the goads. And then, no, you're determined to do it this way. And then, boom, you get a spear through your gut. It may not kill you, but you get a spear through your gut. It's good to know, like, hey, this is a little bit, this is not, this is not for me. Verse 24, Joab and Ashiah also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down where they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and behind, became a unit and took their stand on the top of the hill. So Abner knows how to do military. He gets to high ground. He's, he fortifies his troops like a fleeing group, like in, and he fortifies them. And then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab says, God lives unless you had spoken. Surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew the trumpet. He blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and they did not pursue Israel anymore. Nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on and they all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan and went through Bithron and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner. And when he gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Asiel, 20 total. But the servants 
of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. And then they took up Asheel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men were up all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. So now we have like a, this civil war. Like it, before, it was kind of like the pursuit of one man against another, but now it's like a civil war. It's a, a division of power. But one thing that gets our attention as we wrap up this chapter is David's mighty men have, in fact, become mighty. They have learned a thing or two, and they've been seasoned, and they, they're skilled at warfare. We've seen them show up in the cave in debt, in distress, and discontent. And we've seen their progression as men that are capable and competent for military and administration to be with King David. And here in this battle, this 24-hour battle, 20 men did die, but 360 men of the northern of Abner and his men, what was left of Saul's kingdom, they also died. And so this is where we're at in this book right now, in the story of David. We're going to have civil unrest just a little bit longer, and then it's going to settle into David being king of all Israel and the consolidation of those things. But it seems like it's always a battle, doesn't it? Like, when we just leave David tonight, it's like, ah, you know, they come back, and this happened, and and you're going to find as we go forward with Joab, you can't control Joab, and you can't control Abner. You, you know, like, like ladies, you can't control these kind of guys. And women, you can't, and, and you can't control these kind of women. Like, you just can't help people like this. There are some people that's just the way they are. And David was like, oh my goodness, even at the end of his life, he's like, oh, Solomon, deal with these guys, man. Like, to his deathbed. He's like, I, I can't deal with Joab and these guys. But you can't let them keep you from being who you are as a woman of God or as a man of God. Amen? To the glory of Jesus Christ. We're gonna, we have to stay on point with what we know we're called to do and trust in the Lord to give promotion, fight our battles, and keep refining us to be who we're meant to be. In Jesus' name.